Well, tonight we finish Titus. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your blessing on the Word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us tonight, minister to us tonight, open our eyes, open our ears, give us understanding hearts. And Lord, we just thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. Will you pray, church, and say, Lord, I open my heart to the Word of God. Speak to me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, good to see you in 2018. This is the first service in 2018. Amen. How many of you have already made a mistake writing a date down and you did 2017? I wrote a check that said 2017. I had to go find it and redo it. 2018. How many of you older folks are noticing that time speeds by quicker the older you get? And you younger people kind of smirking right there, you're right behind us. All right. I'm just calling this tonight Final Nuggets because that's what it is. This, I love um, the ending of Paul's letters because Paul always adds these little nuggets of wisdom and direction and, and uh, things that just, um, you know, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's at the end of one of his letters. And he always adds just great little nuggets. So tonight we're going to look at some of those. And once again, Paul is going to get very, very real. He's going to shoot straight. How many of you appreciate a, a straight shooter? Somebody just tells it like it is, right? That's Paul. So last time in the first half of chapter 3, we looked at what Paul meant by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And we also discussed the power of the word justified and how being justified carries more weight than just being forgiven. Because you can be forgiven and still face consequences. But when you're justified, you're acquitted. With, and there's no more consequences. So we've not only been forgiven by God, we've been justified. So there's no consequences, eternally speaking, for our sin. We're going to go to heaven. Amen? Now, in the second half of chapter 3, we're going to look at some final nuggets of wisdom, as I said, as Paul wraps up his letter to young Titus, and we're going to begin with verse 8. So chapter 3, verse 8, here we go, the book of Titus. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Now, the things he wants Titus to to affirm are the powerful truths he just mentioned regarding God's mighty work in the hearts of his children. I'll name them again. The washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, justification by faith, and being made heirs of eternal life. He said, I want you to repeat this and repeat it and repeat it and constantly affirm these things. Never stop talking about them, Titus. And I hear it for me. Jeff, as a pastor, Never stop talking about these things. Amen? Repeat them. Uh, never let them fade from your congregation's memory. Repeat these truths often. Then in the second half of verse 8, Paul instructs Titus to remind the saints that those who have believed in God, this is verse 8, chapter 3, second half, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Now, this is the third mention, folks, of the importance of good works in just 10 verses. Three times in 10 verses, he tells Christians to be involved in 
good works, to maintain good works, to remember to be involved in good works to the glory of God. Now, there is a distinct difference between good works that the world involves itself in and the good works that a Christian involves him or herself in. Because when the world does a good work, it's always tainted with sin. Always. Have you ever noticed, for instance, that when a millionaire or a billionaire decides to give a bunch of money to somebody, have you ever noticed how they figure out some way to let the media know? You ever notice that? Why? Because they want what they did to be trumpeted because they, they really did it for their own glory. But what did Jesus say? When you do a good work, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Or your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep it to yourself. Don't, when, when the offering plate is coming down the aisle, don't, don't hold up your check and pop it. <laughs> pop, pop, pop. So that people look and say, oh, look what they're giving. Right? Don't boast about it. God sees it. And the Bible says what God sees in the secret, he will reward you openly for. But see, the, the good works the world involves itself in are inexorably, inevitably, inescapably tainted with sin because until you're born again, you're always operating in a sin nature. But the good works that a believer involves him or herself in are always to the glory of God. I'm doing this in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. I'm doing this as a representative of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm giving this to you. I'm doing this for you. I'm visiting you. I'm, I'm helping you in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. What I'm doing here tonight is not for my glory. It is because God called me to teach and preach his word, and I'm doing it in the name of Jesus, in his name. Because the day will come when our works are tried at the judgment seat of Christ. No Christian is ever going to go to the great white throne judgment. That is going to be for people whose names are not found in the book of life. But the judgment seat of Christ is when we believers will be brought before our Lord to give an account of what we did with our gift, with our talent, with his calling, with his grace. What did you do with it? Whether it's being a CPA to the glory of God, whether it's flipping hamburgers to the glory of God, whether it's teaching or preaching to the glory of God, whatever it is he gifted you with, and I'm going to talk about that more in a moment, we're going to answer for it. And did we do it unto him? Because he said there's two kinds of works. One of them will be burned up, and those are the works that are wood, hay, and stubble. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 3. But the other kind of works are those that are silver, gold, and precious stones. They will, they will withstand and survive the test of fire, and they remain standing, and you get a reward for it. So even religious people all the time do things for their own glory. But church, let me encourage you. Live your life out for him. Do it in his name. When you bless somebody, do it in his name. When you minister in the church, do it in his name. Say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you as you have called me, and I'm going to do it in your name. Those are the works that are silver, gold, and precious stones. Amen? Now, again, this is the third mention of the importance of good works in just 10 verses. It tells us we're saved to serve, not sit, soak, and sour. You're not called to occupy a chair and never do anything in the body of Christ. 
God doesn't call bench warmers. Amen? God, every Christian has a call. Now, if we weren't saved to serve, then God would take us home the moment we believe, wouldn't he? If there's no more purpose here on earth, wouldn't he just take us home the moment we believe? Well, they're saved. Bring them home. But he leaves us here. Why does he leave us here? Because we're saved. Church, say it with me. I'm saved to serve. Getting saved and getting your ticket to heaven is just the beginning. But we're saved to serve. Every one of us, saved to serve. Now, let's talk about good works for a moment. Let me go back to something we repeat all the time, but we need to hear it all the time. First, good works do not save us. There's nothing. If God gave us a million years to be on earth and, and try to earn our way in heaven, we could never do it. We could never merit it. We could never earn it. Never, never. Paul already told us three verses earlier in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What are you and I tonight? We're products of the mercy of God. Thank God for his mercy. He chased us down. He stayed with it. He didn't give up on us. When we resisted him and fought against him and ran from him, the hound of heaven kept on chasing. Aren't you glad he finally got you into a corner? And by his mercy, he saved us. But while good works don't save us, they are one of the evidences that we have been saved. For instance, watch this. The very moment Saul of Tarsus was saved, he said, Lord, what will you have me do? He didn't say, where do you want me to sit? He said, what will you have me do? That's a verb. What do you want me to do? Paul immediately understood as Saul, before he, his name became Paul, he immediately understood, I've been saved to serve. So he's got his, he laid his hand on me. He knocked me down on the road to Damascus, not just to get me into heaven, but to do something. What do you want me to do? Our Lord Jesus was known for the good works he did. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around, what are the next two words? Doing good. Now, that's good works. Doing good. He was involved in good works. And look what it goes on to say. And healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He went around doing good. He went around doing good works. Jesus was involved in good works all the days of his ministry. And again, it says of our Lord. In Acts 2.22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Now look at these next five words. Which God did by him. Catch that. God wanted to do something in the earth. But what did he do? He laid his hand on his son. And what the son did was God doing it by him. By him. That's a good work. When God is using you on the earth to do miracles, wonders, signs, good works in his name that God does by not, listen, he did it by Jesus and he wants to do it by you. God worked through Jesus and God wants to work in the same way through us. God uses people with skin on them. Every once in a while he'll send an angel. Oh, yeah. He'll send angels, and angels are probably around this building. Some of you, the way you drive, angels followed you all the way here. 
But, but you've got a permanent assignment on you when you drive. But watch this now. Here's the deal. He uses angels. Yes, he does. But he mainly uses you. 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 You're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. So let me ask you, how's God using you these days? And the apostle says we should maintain good works. This means we aren't to get tired and quit. He says maintain good works. He says be sure you remind them to maintain good works. This means we're not to give up. All too often we start something and we don't see it through because we get discouraged, we get disillusioned, or we don't see the results we want, and we give up. Paul says, keep going. Folks, remember this, because your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Even when it looks like there's no results, God is doing things behind the scenes you can't see. So you keep going. You don't give up. You just keep going. You walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible also couldn't be more clear regarding each Christian's calling and gifting for good works. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this verse. It's so powerful. Peter wrote, as each of you, turn to your neighbor and say, that means you. Now, how many does it mean when it says each of you? It means everybody. So catch this now. As each of you has received a special gift. I'm going to stop right there. Do you really believe you're gifted? Because the Bible says when you got saved, each of you received a special gift. Then look what he says. Employ it in serving one another. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This verse is so loaded. I could spend the rest of the night on that verse. But let me just pull a couple of things out. According to this passage, each Christian has been gifted for good works. Each Christian has received a gift. A gift from heaven where God has said, this is what I'm putting in you. This is what I'm gifting you with for you to serve the body of Christ primarily. And if you read Ephesians, Paul says, when every joint supplies, he's talking about the joints in the body. He's comparing the Christian congregation to a body. He says, when every joint supplies, when everybody is supplying the body grows into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So this is teamwork. See, I need you as much as you need me. Say, Jeff, do you really believe that? Or are you just saying something nice? No, I believe it. I, I totally believe it. I need you as much as you need me. We need one another. We're supposed to one another one another. See, because God gave you a gift. And if God gave you a gift, then I need it and I want it. And he says, employ it, use it. Now look at what he says, because it's, been a, it's a stewardship. That means God trusted you with a gift. And remember the parable of the talents? He gave five to one, two to another, and one to another. And remember when, he, when the master came back to, give an, to get an account for what he had given them. The one with five talents had gained five more because he had used the five talents God gave him. And the one with two had used the two and gained two more. But the one that was only given one had buried it. And the master said, you wicked and lazy servant, you should have used what I gave you. But since you didn't, I'm going to take what you have and I'm going to give it to the one that already has five or, or two 
and you're going to lose what you, what you had. The whole, the whole thrust of that parable is it's a stewardship. I don't own it. I don't own the gift God gave me. You don't own the gift God gave you. It's a stewardship. And so when you are, you know, Jesus said, it's like a, a master of the house leaves, and he leaves his house to somebody else. And one day he's going to return and see how you took care of the house because he left them in charge of the house as stewards, not owners. Now, I don't own this church. I don't own the gift God gave me, and neither do you. But here's the deal. I'm a steward. So I'm going to use the gift God gave me every which way but loose because I know he's going to come to me one day and say, what would you do with it? Well, Lord, I did everything I could. I went on radio with it. I... I taught the congregation. I studied. I gave myself to it. I did my best to rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, I did my very best. And you need to be able to say, Lord, the gift you gave me, I found out what it was, and I put it to use. Here's the return. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How can he say well done if we didn't do anything? If he says, well done, you had to have done something. So each Christian has been gifted for good works and is to steward that gift, which means make good use of it. And that's what our church is all about. That's why we teach what we teach here, the growth track and helping you discover your spiritual gift and trying to give you uh, venues and avenues where you can exercise your gift. And no, we don't bat, you know, a thousand. We, 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 we can't help everybody as much as we wish we could, but, but, but we do as well as we can. We do as, as good as we can, and there's a lot of people who have been allowed and helped to discover their gift and become useful in the body of Christ. The young lady that was up here saying hello to all of you, Alyssa, do you know that her husband had to drag her to this church and she sat way back in the back and hated every minute of it? I'm telling on her. Where are you, Alyssa? Is she, she's upstairs. And then one Sunday, the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Ghost, nailed her. And she got touched and she got changed. Now she's here every time the door is open. She is serving with her gift in this house. And that is, and listen, there's tons of stories like that. So everybody say, I'm gifted. gifted. With a stewardship that I'm going to give an account for. Then Paul adds in chapter 3, verse 8, the last part of that verse, these things are good and profitable to men. Good works bless others. And they're also profitable to the one doing them. He that waters will himself be watered. Given it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men give into your bosom. What you sow, you reap. What you give, you get back. For instance, being involved in good works, did you know it plays a role in perfecting your faith or maturing it? Listen to James. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you not see... That faith was working together with his works. And look what it says next. By works, his faith was made perfect. See, there's something that's not going to be developed and matured in our faith until we step out and begin to serve the Lord somehow, some way. Did you catch what I just said? There, Abraham's faith, we call him the father of our faith. He's known for faith. His works made his faith 
perfect, matured and perfected is faith. James said, you show me your works, your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, next Paul moves from good works to the issue of dissension and division. Look what he says in verse 9. But, but avoid foolish disputes. Now, he's really shifting gears here. We're now leaving the world of good works. We're totally shifting gears and going into something very different. He's dealing now with dissension and division in the house of God that it would be prevented. Look what he says in verse 9. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Now, let me just break that down a little bit. We're to avoid getting dragged into disputes that lead nowhere. You ever gotten into a dispute that after about three hours you realize this is going nowhere? You ever done that? Isn't it just the most exhausting thing in the world to be involved in a dispute that goes nowhere? Now, we're to avoid that. And, and for instance, we know that there are people who aren't genuine seekers. And I've, I've dealt with many people in this category. All they want to do is cause confusion and trouble with questions that they ask Christians that are designed to drag you into time-consuming squabbles. Let me give you an example. I got this one once. If God can do anything, then can he create a stone so heavy he can't move it? You know what that is? That's just stupid. But you know what it's designed to do? It's designed to cause a squabble. It's designed, it's designed to cause a dispute that can't be settled. Here's another one. Well, if, if Genesis is true, then where did Cain get a wife? If Adam and Eve were the first and only human beings on earth, where did Cain get his wife? Nah, 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 nah. And it's just a, I mean, and that's easy to answer. Clearly, Adam and Eve had more children, and I hate to put it this way, this is kind of gross, but it was a sister. That's the way they, that's the way it went down back then. Thank God we're no longer there. <laughs> but, but see, here's the deal. There's, there are dishonest seekers and there are honest seekers. Honest seekers deserve honest answers. And you know what? The Christians should be prepared to answer them. But we should also be trained to spot a phony seeker and realize we don't have to sit there and waste our time answering foolish questions. Amen. And then he advises avoiding fruitless discussions about genealogies. The Bible has a lot to say about genealogies, and they serve a purpose. And a lot of us started our Through the Bible in a Year again. And isn't it fun when you get to those long stretches of genealogies? Isn't that fun? I mean, you kind of have to have a, just a, a cup of major, cold, black, Starbucks coffee with nothing in it but the coffee to stay awake through those genealogies. Because they go on, some of them, forever and forever. They serve a purpose. But here's the deal. Uh, and, of course, you know what a genealogy is. It's tracking a family's ancestors to discover your ancestral roots. I know this about mine. I know that Wickwire is of English descent and came from Warwick, Warwickshire, and all those derivatives of Wickwire, or Wickwire is a derivative of them. And I'm going to tell you, I've also got some Cherokee. And that's the truth. And that's where I get my wild streak. (laughs) 
But now, if, if you know what the genealogies are for, let me give you an example. Dr. Luke, in chapter 3 of his gospel, provides a lengthy genealogy that traces the Lord Jesus' ancestry through Mary to show him, that is Jesus, to be the promised seed of a woman as predicted in Genesis 3.15, where God says to the devil that there is going to come a seed from the woman who's going to bruise your head. That's talking about a death blow. And you're going to bruise his heel, a hint at the crucifixion. I call Genesis 3.15 the Old Testament John 3.16. Because Genesis 3.15 is the gospel in prophecy. And Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy uttered in the Bible. So Luke takes the Lord Jesus genealogy, starting at Mary, all the way back to Adam. What Paul is really advising here is for us to not get bogged down in endless genealogical disputes which in his day was usually stirred up by the Jews because they liked bragging about their supposed superiority over the Gentiles. So they would get into these long, exhausting genealogical disputes. So I don't think most of you have to worry about a genealogical disputes, so let me move on. Finally, Paul advised avoiding strivings about the law. He says, because they're unprofitable and they're useless. Now the word strivings here means quarreling, uh, arguing. The Jews could be fierce in defending the Mosaic law along with all the useless man-made traditions they imposed on others. For instance, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, and it was in the Ten Commandments. God said, you know, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. There was one day they were to rest. But by the time the Jews got with it after a few centuries, the Sabbath was this incredible burden. You were paranoid to move to the right or the left lest you break one of their traditions. So the, the, the Sabbath, rather than giving you rest, became a burdensome day. He says, don't argue about these things. Don't quarrel about these things. Don't get involved. Steer clear of endless arguments and doctrinal hair splitting. It's unprofitable. It's a useless waste of time. And I think what I pull from these little nuggets of wisdom regarding what we're to avoid, what I pull from this is, folks, we need to get discerning about what is wasting our time and and what isn't. What's worth talking about and debating about and what isn't? If I can tell somebody is an honest seeker, I'll talk to you all day. But I can tell pretty quick if somebody is just out to play with me or impress me with their brain Uh, because I talk to lost people. I go online and talk to lost people. Um, I want to know how they're thinking. I want to know what they're putting their faith in. I want to know how I can reach them. Um, So I do it, but I can tell if they're really out to find an honest answer or they're just there to give me a problem. And to, uh, like I said, impress me. And I'll just, I'll just cut that thing off. I'll say, you know, it's been real. God bless you. See you. I don't waste my time. So learn what to put your time into and who to put it into and who not. And finally, Paul advo- advised avoiding, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. Let's move on down. As Paul's letter to Titus comes closer to the end, he turns his attention now to the case of a man who is a heretic. 
Now, I know there's no heresy in our day, but let's go ahead and look at it anyway. That's a joke, son. Look what he says in verse 10. This is what I love about Paul. He's so real. He cuts right to the chase. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. And we could also say woman. Amen, men? Reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition. Now, the word divisive here is from the Greek word from which we get heresy. Now, you remember in chapter 1 when Paul talked about the insubordinate person. You remember that? Because Paul is describing different types of people in this letter. So he talks about the insubordinate in chapter 1, and here he's talking about the heretic in chapter 3. So Paul deals with types of people and tells us how to handle them. And remember, uh, when he was talking about the insubordinate person, the insubordinate person uh, is defiant and disrespectful of authority. You remember that? The insubordinate person doesn't respect delegated authority. The insubordinate person often doesn't even recognize God's authority in somebody. Now, let me, let me just share a nugget with you that I've learned through the years. Watch this. You remember when, when Aaron and Miriam went and faced Moses off? Now, they were his siblings. Uh, Miriam and Aaron were bro and sis to Moses. And they began to criticize their brother, Moses. Because here's what they failed to do. They failed to remember or discern the delegated authority of God on his life. And so they attacked him. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you tonight. They attacked him from what I can gather because he married a woman of another race. And so Miriam went to tell little bro what for. And Aaron joined in. And you remember Moses just standing there. Now, Here's the, what they did. They, they were seeing him as brother. They were seeing him as they had known him in the flesh. But they were not seeing or discerning who he was in the spirit. You remember when Paul said once, we know no man after the flesh any longer, but after the spirit. See, when I meet somebody, I want to know two things. Who are you in the natural and who are you in him? And if I meet somebody who's over me, clearly I can tell, spiritually, in the Lord, then I've just met two things. I've met the person they are and I've met who they are in him and what God has delegated to their life. And here's the deal. A, an insubordinate person doesn't discern who somebody is in the spirit. And so they don't respect the authority God has placed on them. And they rebel against it or criticize it or them and undermine them. And can I give you a newsflash? Nobody called by God is perfect. Can everybody say amen? amen? None of them are perfect. I have never had anybody over me, spiritually speaking, who did not disappoint me in one way or another, for sure, somewhere along the way, some more than others. But here's what I did not do. I did not fail to respect who they were in the spirit. 
Because when I do that, I'm respecting the one who called them. See, didn't Jesus say, if you receive the one I send, you receive me? Hello, everybody. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. So when Jesus sends somebody, A, they're never going to be perfect. But when you receive them for who they are in the Spirit and love them in spite of their imperfections and receive for, from them whatever God sent them to put into you, then you are receiving the Christ who sent them. And if you receive, when, as soon as you receive Jesus into your life, you receive the Father who sent him. This is the whole principle of delegated authority. But the insubordinate person forgets all that. And when you're not perfect, they attack you or undermine you or reject you. And that immediately shows they do not understand the principle of delegated authority. Remember when Paul was in front of the council and, and the high priest, and he didn't know that he was the high priest, the high priest said, smack him, slap him. And when they reared back to slap him, Paul looked at the high priest and said, God will smite you, you whited wall. And then, and then, then they said, hey, Paul, that's the high priest. And immediately Paul changed. He went, oh, 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 I did not realize, brothers, he was the high priest. And his attitude immediately changed. Was this man who was ordering Paul to be slapped in the spirit? Was he right at all? No. But what was Paul doing? He was recognizing the position God had delegated to him as high priest. I didn't mean to go into this teaching. I'm just flowing, going with the flow here tonight. This isn't in my notes. But, but we got to understand this. So that's the insubordinate. That's the insubordinate. But the heretic is a different story. The insubordinate person has an authority issue, but the heretic has a theology issue. A heretic is a person who rejects sound biblical doctrine. And I've told you about doctrine all through this series. Doctrine is simply sound teaching, healthy teaching. A heretic is a person who rejects healthy teaching to embrace other ideas, and then they spread those ideas, bringing division. Strong's Concordance describes the heretic as a factious person specializing in half-truths and misimpressions to win others over to their personal opinion. You know who's really, really good at that? Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses, other cults, they train their emissaries to do this very thing, to, to, to bring half-truths and misimpressions to those they're trying to proselytize and deceive you into their cult. They're, they're specialists at this. Paul, Peter, and John are very well acquainted with heretics. Some of them denied the resurrection. You can read about that in 2 Timothy 2. I gave you these verses so you can look them up if you want to. Still others deny the Lord. John went so far as to mention some heretical Christians as being part of the synagogue of Satan. Revelations 2.9. In another place, Paul said, Mark those who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Mark them. Now, that word is strong from the, the language. If, if a doctor looks at an x-ray... And in the x-ray, he sees a cancer anywhere in your body. He marks that spot for removal so that it won't grow and destroy your body. 
Paul is saying here, mark people that way in your body of believers that if they're causing a division and won't repent and keep doing it, mark them. Mark them, I'm going to say it, for removal. Because they're causing division. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul predicts a flood of heresy in the last days. Listen to what he said. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly. Then the last times or the last days, some will turn away from the true faith. Some will turn away. So look, they were in the true faith, but they will turn away. And what do they turn away from and turn towards? They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. Now I'm going to ask you a question tonight, church of God. Are we seeing heresy in our day? Are we seeing people turn away from the true faith towards things that we know are taught by demons? We've watched, listen, we've watched entire denominations throw the Bible out the back door and stomp on basic doctrinal truth. We no longer believe in the virgin birth. We no longer believe in the resurrection of Christ. We no longer believe in the second coming. We no longer believe in the efficacy of the blood. We no longer believe in hell. We're all about good works, getting out there, the wrong kind of good works. Social gospel is what it's called. Getting out there and feeding the hungry and and visiting the sick. But when it comes to the doctrines that are healthy teaching, they throw them out. We've watched whole, now I'm going to go where angels fear to tread, but we've watched whole denominations throw out the Bible's clear teaching on Bible morality. And now we will ordain somebody living a sinful homosexual lifestyle and allow them to oversee one of our churches or we will marry people of the same gender. doesn't matter anymore. What really matters is love. But I don't know what they mean by love because to me love is being truthful because truth is all that's going to save you. But folks, we're watching whole denominations that used to be pillars of the truth have now now apostatized in these last days. Heresy is running amok. And I wrote here, when a person goes this route, the, the heresy route, we say that they apostatize from the faith. So Paul here is predicting a great apostasy, a falling away from the true faith in, in large numbers in the last days. And we're seeing it, folks, in front of our eyes. The apostle instructs Titus to confront the heretic with the truth of God. They are not allowed to continue in their false beliefs within the confines of the church without being admonished to turn. Look what he says. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Now, what does admonition mean? It has to do with training by word. When, when you correct your child, let's say you, you say, don't go across the street. And then an hour later, you look and they're on the other side of the street. What do you do? You, you, you go to them, you bring them home, and you admonish them by word. I told you, and you might use something more than word. But the idea is when you admonish, when you are, admoni- when you are admonishing somebody, admonition means to train by word. 
Just like a level is used to see if something is straight or crooked. You got that level, little bubble in the middle, and, and, and you're wanting to know if that painting is hung straight. So you put the level on top of the painting, and if the bubble is right in the middle, then it's hung straight. Here's the deal. The Word of God is supposed to be our level. It's supposed to be our level. So that when we hear a teaching, we want to see if it's crooked or straight. So we hold the level of the Word of God up to it. And if the bubble, if the Word of God is in the middle, if it's balanced teaching, then we can say amen. But if it's not, if it's crooked, the level of the Word of God will tell us. So the Word of God is to be applied to the heretic's False ideas and doctrines. So you got somebody, let's say somebody came into our body here, and, and they were teaching that uh, Jesus was not virgin born. Okay, if that's your opinion and you're sitting out there, I hope God reaches you as I preach and teach every week. But if you start trying to teach the people God has entrusted to me that Jesus was not virgin born, and you're taking them aside, and you're meeting them outside the church, and you're trying to poison them with that, you're going to meet me. I'm serious. You're going to meet me. I'm going to be all over you. And, and I'm going to say, that's not biblical. The level of the Word of God is way off. That's showing the bubble way, way, way left. And, and that's not good teaching. So either you stop it or you're going to have to leave. And I would approach them twice because that's what the Word of God says. Folks, this is what I do with every teaching I hear. I immediately, I'll take any teaching I hear, if it's TV, if it's radio, if it's from a person I'm in a conference, if I'm hearing a teaching without even meaning to, I will take what they're saying and I will match it up against the Word of God that I know, that I've studied. I want to know, did Peter, James, John, and Jude, and Paul teach this? I want to know. Can I find this in the writings of Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude? Can I find this in the teachings of Jesus? And if I can't find it in the teachings of Jesus or in the teachings of... Because the epistle writers were Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude. If I can't find it, if, I, if, if what I'm hearing won't hold up to the level of the Word of God, then I know it's off. And you know what bothers me? Christians these days are so gullible. And I say that in love. I love you. And I'm not saying you, per se. But I'm saying I, I, I see some things that Christians are reading or, or watching listening to, allowing, allowing into the inner sanctums of their soul to teach them. And I see it, and I go, what? What are you doing? Don't you, can't you hold this up to what Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude, and Jesus said? Don't you know the Bible well enough to spot this? And the answer is, not usually. That's why we go through books on Wednesday night. Because Paul said to the Ephesians, I, didn't, I, did, I did not fail to teach you the whole counsel of God. Not little pet verses that I want to pull out and use to get your money or to gain favor. I'm not here to give you a pep talk or a motivational speech, although I will encourage you. But I'm here to teach you the word of God. 
And that's what every pastor ought to be doing, teaching the Word of God as it is to people as they are. If you'd have been under Paul, that's what he would have done, or Peter, or James, John, or Jude, or Jesus. So you have in your hand a level. It's the level. And you're to hold it up against what you're reading or watching or listening to and see if it measures up, see if it's balanced. See if it's healthy teaching. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good stuff. I really agree with you there. <laughs> and, and that's just talking about so-called Christian teachers. Boy, I could really go places. Not to, that's not including network talk shows. Help me, Jesus. To me, I hope I don't offend anybody here, and I'm being a little funny, but to me, hell would be having to sit in a room and watch continual repeats of The View. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. And, and, and I'll give you another example while I'm at it, while I'm really feeling my Cheerios here. Let, let, me, let me give you another example. The conservative radio hosts. I could name them, Dennis Prager, Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity. I, I could go through a bunch of them that are on the radio, and I'm on radio, but they're on the radio, radio talk shows, um, uh, Michael Savage, and, and they're politically, they're conservative. So if, if you're into politics and, and you want a conservative view, you're okay as long as they stay with politics. But listen, when these guys go off into theology, it's crazyville. It's crazyville, most of them. It's terrible. Dennis Prager, I love Dennis's uh, political talk. But Dennis is, and I say this in love, and, and, and if he wasn't a totally public person, I wouldn't say his name. And I'm not being critical of him. I'm really not. I'm just pointing something out here. He is a non-believing Jew. He teaches on the Bible all the time. He mentions the Bible all the time in his shows. But if you listen when he goes theological, he, he teaches against our Jesus. He will say, I don't believe in him. And the guy is very persuasive. And sometimes I get concerned that Christians are listening to these politically conservative men. But they're not taking the level of the word of God and holding it up to what they say theologically. Because when, when Michael Savage or Dennis Pre who is another Jewish gentleman, when they go theological, I go to another station. You just got to be careful, folks. You got to be careful. We're fighting the good fight. We are to be discerning. We are to know our Bible well enough to hold it up and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not sound. That's not healthy. That's not what I see in my New Testament. Are y'all hearing me tonight? I hope I'm not going too far. I, I really do. When it comes to the heretic, the elders are to confront him twice while he's still in the church. He's to be given every opportunity to recognize his error and recant his heresy, but if he refuses, he is to be removed for the sake of the body. The politically correct here would jump at this thought and cry, Don't judge, and that's not love. But Jesus himself would not agree with that. 
He warned regularly of the false teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He named them and he told his followers, watch out. Hold the level up. Judge it. Why? Because as Paul told the Galatians, listen to this verse out of the Living Bible. It's so powerful. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said, it takes only one wrong person among you to infect all the others. Did you catch that? It takes one wrong person to infect the whole body, the whole family, the whole workplace, the whole prayer group. One, just one. If people are not holding the level up and saying, wait a minute, what you're saying is wrong, we're done listening to you. Insubordination is contagious. Rebellion against authority is contagious. Heresy is contagious, folks. Now, Paul finishes his focus on heresy by describing the true spiritual condition of the heretic, and we're coming to the close here. He says in verse 11 about the heretic, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Warped means perverted. The heretic has a moral problem nine times out of ten. It's interesting that with cults, you almost always find rampant sexual sin among the leaders. Ever notice that? And then Paul says that he is sinning. The heretic is sinning, which means to miss the mark or to wander from the right path. A heretic knows deep down that he is sinning, and so he is self-condemned because he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he keeps doing it. The bottom line is this. A man who has a moral twist and knows it, who embraces a false doctrine and persists in doing so, has no place in the fellowship of the church. Now, final instruction from Paul to Titus had to do with what he should do and where he should go. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, that name just makes me want to itch. Tychicus. Doesn't it make you just want to, don't name your son Tychicus. Hey, Tick. Hey, Tick. No. <laughs> when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Here's what Paul is telling him. Finish your assignment diligently, Titus. Get with it so that you can come to me by winter. Don't mess around. Don't procrastinate. Just do it. Now, here I'm struck by Paul's tireless zeal. This speaks to me. Let it speak to you. Though the shadows of his life were lengthening and darkness was closing in, his martyrdom is not far away. He's still strategizing handing out assignments, and pushing forward in the Lord's work. Somebody say amen. amen. Then he says in verse 13, Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack, lack nothing. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Zenos. He surfaces only here in Scripture, but he was traveling with the golden-tongued Apollos in preaching the gospel. And Paul wanted to be sure that Titus sent them on their way with sufficient supplies for the mission field. Now, and then, Paul's final instruction, once again, for the fourth time, he comes back to the necessity of God's people being involved in good works. Verse 14, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. And finally, Paul says, farewell. Verse 15, 
All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Notice he didn't say greet those who don't love us. There are plenty of those. He said greet the ones that love us. He, he's pointing to those that Titus was around who knew them. Greet those who love us, Paul said. Paul had been in their churches, their homes, their workshops. He had visited their farms. He'd gone fishing with them. But above all, he had taught them the matchless word of God, and they loved him for it. He closes with a prayer of grace. Let's stand together, and we're going to read this together. He says, let's read it. Ready? Grace be with you all. I love that. Grace for living, grace for dying, and grace for everything in between. Amen. Can we lift our hands to the Savior? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for a real night in the Word of God. Thank you for this precious Word that gives us so much wisdom, so much instruction, helps us to to illuminate our path, guide us in the way. Lord, as we now begin this new year of 2018, I pray that what we've learned in Titus and the rest of the scriptures will be the light that lightens our path, that it will hold preeminency over our heart, that we will live by it, practice it, walk in it. Thank you, Lord, for discernment that increases by the day as we spend more time in your word, learning that precious level that not only feeds our soul but helps us to spot danger and recognize heresy and false teaching and things that damage and misrepresent you. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to be people of the Word, but also people free in the Spirit. Thank you for that great balance. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Let's just sing some worship, just for a chorus or two. In Christ alone, cornerstone, yes, made strong. In the Savior's love And through the storm He is Lord Lord Sing it one more time, Christ alone In Christ alone Yes, Lord The cornerstone stone, And we can make strong in the Savior's love And through the storm He is Lord, Lord of Thank you, Lord. Let's give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.